Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Hello and welcome back to today's episode of Payroll Question Time. God, it feels like ages since the last session, but you'll be pleased to see we have got a absolutely action-packed, knowledgeable amazing ensemble here of uh, payroll talents on the payroll question time panel. So I'm super excited to welcome them all to the show to help you with all of your PQT questions. Now, of course, we are going to be tackling the question of holiday pay today. As you may or may not be aware, the government has launched a consultation following the Supreme Court ruling the holiday pay for part year and irregular hour workers can no longer be pro rata. Now, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nick Day. I'm the uh, founder of the Payroll Podcast. I'm also the founder of JGA Recruitment, which is a specialist payroll recruitment company. I am a reward 300 award winner and member. I've been in this industry now for two decades. I don't know where the time has gone, but I love it. And uh, I'm so excited to have such a great panel today. So let's let's run through them. This is this got a real behemoth behemoth PQT session today. So I'm going to start with uh, as I see the the people on my left and right on my video screen here with you, Lou. I wonder if you could introduce yourself. So my name is Lou Gray and I'm an associate director at Evelyn Partners and also I'm on the board of directors for CIPP and now Nick you're making me afraid now I'm scared <laughs> be gentle uh, you, on me it's been a while it's been a while but you know how this works Lou I've known I've ever caught you out yet so that's still my challenge and I'll win that battle one day uh, moving from left to right what? to Samantha Johnson if you can introduce yourself please Hello, yeah, so I'm Sam Johnson. I'm Payroll Services Director over at Danes and equally as terrified as Lou. Been a hard start to the new year, so be kind to us. <laughs> Fantastic. Moving from left to right, uh, my good friend, who I've actually cycled a lot of Europe with over the years, so I know this individual very well, uh, Mr Richard George. Good afternoon. I'm not worried at all because any TIFF questions I'm going to give to Samantha and Lou. Um, so <laughs> I'm Richard George, Director of Education at the Payroll Centre. Um, I wish I could say it's only been two decades, but it's certainly been a lot longer than that uh, and always been in payroll since just the day I started working. So, uh, yeah, all good. Fantastic. We're well, moving from left to right. Simon, to introduce himself first if you can. Simon Parsons, Director of Compliance Strategies at SD Works. I also chair BCS Payroll Specialist Group, that's British Computer Society and Irene organisation. I'm also part of Reward 300, uh, been in the industry uh, quite some time. To last but not least, our pensions expert on the show as well, Andy Nichols. Hi everyone. Yes, yeah, my background is all payroll, but I spent the last ten years with the pensions regulator on automatic enrolment, helping the payroll industry um, get all that in place. And um, obviously, that's what I'm hoping to be able to answer any questions on, and anything else pensions connected as well. Well, let's tell you all what we're going to be discussing today. Today's topics are going to include holiday pay, of course they are, uh, salary sacrifice schemes, enterprise zone relief, pensions, and if we've got time at the end of the session, there'll be a hot topics Q&A section as well. Now, before we jump into holiday pay, I suspect it's going to be a busy subject area. We're going to run our first poll of the day. So that's me asking all 146 of you to get involved if we can. Uh, the poll is, should holiday rules be left alone? or should they be amended? We've got four options here. You can leave them alone. I didn't know about potential changes whatsoever. Don't worry if you didn't. That's what this show is all about. Uh, bring back the 12.07%. 
and the new proposals have merit. So while we wait for those results to come in, let me see if I can ask a quick question to our panel that comes in on this holiday pay area. Um, I will let the panel, uh, maybe I'll come to you, Simon, if I can, uh, just, just for clarity here. I have a worker who has expired SSP uh, and we do not know if he will return. He has variable pay. So how long would you use for an average prior to his sickness for entitlement rather than pay for clarification? Um, in relation to sickness yes. or to holiday? Oh, good question. Oh, okay. uh, maybe clarification. Yeah. It's like a worker who has expired yes. SSP. Yes. So a worker who has expired SSP needs to return for 56 days first before they'd be entitled to any further SSP, if that's related to that question. But I'm not sure if it is, Nick. And uh, and then uh, the averaging would then be taken for the periods of time before that new sickness. Yeah, well, now, if we're talking about what's, what's, yeah, go on. I was going to say, well, if the person put that question in the box, if you can just confirm to me whether that's related to holiday pay or whether that's related to SSP, that'd be great. But I don't know if you have an answer You've answered the SSP one of 56 yeah. days. If it was for holiday pay, Simon, how would that um, how would that would your response differ? Well, that's right. You wouldn't count the sickness weeks. You'd do normal weeks going back uh, 52 week average over the past 104 weeks, and that would be the basis of calculating the holiday pay if they go on leave. So you don't really count the holiday periods. You count the normal weeks when they worked um, in accordance with some of the guidance from Bayes. Um, I don't know if Richard's got a comment there or what he thinks, actually, because no, um, he may. He did his principle that uh, we don't include, well, we didn't include furlough weeks, we don't include parental leave weeks. For weekly paid, you don't include holiday weeks um, and yes. you don't include um, absences of sickness or non paid weeks. Other than that, it's yeah. 52 in arrear up to a maximum of 104. Yes. Now, we do see a couple of social media questions on this one, Nick because um, I know a number of employees have been told that they've lost their holiday because they haven't used it within the holiday year. Well, actually, because they're on sickness, they get an element of protection. So the holiday does carry forward. So normally, four weeks under EU law wouldn't carry forward into a new year. But if they're absent for sickness or maternity or parental leave rights, it does. But there is some question of whether they could have taken the holiday in the year that's relevant and didn't as opposed to um, they couldn't because of sickness and maternity. It's just some thoughts there. But sometimes this sort of use it or lose it is valid sometimes, but not in relation to maternity, especially. And certainly long term sick, you can't apply that. It uh, They still carry forward the right. Sure. Well, let's have a look at some of these poll results then, because we've already had one to five questions come in on holiday pay. So we are going to have a busy panel today. Let's have a look at those poll results and see what, what the, uh, the overall oh, we are 44 percent. I didn't know about potential changes. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that's what today is all about. But let me come to you, Samantha. What are your thoughts on those uh, immediate poll results? Um, I'm surprised, to be honest, that, that half didn't know about the potential changes. I think I suppose it's one of those if you're on LinkedIn, you've you must have seen it because it's just been everywhere. If you're not on LinkedIn, then then maybe that's a reason to jump on. Um, I'm also quite surprised that that 17% say leave it alone. I think the holiday rules at the moment for people on variable pay are so complex and so difficult to get right. I you know I I'm genuinely shocked that there's anyone out there that that wants to leave it alone. Um, so so yeah, I'd probably surprise me is my initial response. 
Well, just to, to bring this to, to interview for those that perhaps are just listening in audio only, we've got 17% said leave alone, 44% said I didn't know about potential changes, 24% uh, said bring back the 12.07%. I think that's what I would have ticked if I was on this poll. Mm -hmm. uh, and 15% said the new proposals have merit. Um, let's jump into then the, the holiday pay section. And on that 12.07%, on that what would be the the main reason, I mean, from my perspective, I'm not a payroll person, I'm a payroll recruiter, so that 12.07% just makes it way simpler for me. But what would be the reason that you wouldn't go back to that method, Simon? The predominant reason, according to the Brazil case, of course, is there's no lawful method to do that. So um, the principle of uh, the working time regulations and the Employment Rights Act is that it has to be based on a, an averaging. And I guess the element that scuppered it a little bit with Leslie Brazil and the Harper Trust is before they brought in the 12.07 cent, they used to do a 12-week average. So they then decided to go with 12.07% and then were challenged, uh, especially as they cut it back for the weeks where the school closed. And she won her case. It went bounced around, went to an employment tribunal and the Supreme Court, uh, sorry, the um, sort of Court of Appeal first and the Supreme Court. And they've all found in her favour and basically said the 12.07% doesn't work. And there are a couple of reasons potentially why it doesn't under the current working time regulations and the Employment Rights Act. And one is because, uh, and also it's an element of how people operate the 1207, because sometimes I see the 1207 operated on hours worked and sometimes on pay given, and they come up with completely different results. So equally, some put it on hours contracted, not hours worked. So they're only doing 12.07 of the standard hours, if they do extra hours or overtime, they're not. So there's an element of everybody getting on board with what the principle is. Uh, and ev even with this consultation of understanding what it is, but the 1207 doesn't meet the averaging requirements. And that's what the court found. So although the principle sounds good, when you actually do the maths, it doesn't work out um, so because it doesn't take care of the zero pay weeks. I think it's also, sorry, Nick, I was going to say there was a secondary situation, especially at the final Supreme Court, where under EU law, it is a more acceptable option to use an average. But obviously, UK law is the Employment Rights Act, which is now the 52 week average. And the um, court actually said that even though it's there in the UK, EU, the UK legislation trumps it. So you couldn't fall back on that secondary. I guess, model, if that makes sense. That's right. And, and in fairness, some European nations operate similar model to those. For example, I think you probably find in Ireland, it's not done on the sort of similar basis. So EU law gets interpreted international law and it's placed into national law and it's the national law that then sets the application of the directive. Uh, and the European judgments aren't of the directive they're of the national law application of the directive, if that makes sense. And just, so just you can get in, different things in different nations. I'm going to step in just for a moment because we're getting lots and lots of questions, which is fantastic. So please, please do keep them coming in. I'm just going to let everyone know how I'm going to manage these because of the volume of coming through. If we start with the two points we've got on the slide here, just run through the change legislation we expect and bring the Leslie Brazil case. We saw 44% of the people on the, on the poll weren't necessarily aware of these changes. If we just bring that to, to life first. And then what I'll do is I'll run through all of your questions without missing a single one 
um, once we've gone through those two bullet points just to make all of our attendees happy with how it works. So do keep putting those questions in the box. I will get to them all. Uh, but let's start then with this first bullet point. If I come back to you, um, Samantha, what changes legislation can we expect? In terms of the, the consultation? Yeah. So this is where hands up. I have not read the consultation yet. I'm fully aware of it from LinkedIn, but I haven't got the details. So I'm going to have to defer on that one, Nick, I'm afraid. No, that's fine. How about yourself, which I know that you we were talking about yeah, this. Fine. So we're now talking about the consultation rather than the case, because um, they are very, very different things. So to give background for those who do not know anything, the sort of Brazil case took two sort of directions. One was about the pay element vis-a-vis um, -vis using 12.07% when the regulation is different, but it then moved on to actual entitlement. And principally, the whole point here is about what is a part-year worker. So we have part-time workers and you have part-year workers. So a part-time worker works three days a week, every week of the year. A part-year worker, in the case of Mrs. Brazil, who worked for a school, works 32 out of 52 weeks. But the important aspect is that she's contracted for the year even though she only works 32 weeks. So where the case went in relation to entitlement was that because they are on an annual or a permanent contract, they are accruing holiday, in inverted commas, for a year, and therefore they are entitled to 5.6 weeks holiday in exactly the same way as you or I who are fully employed. Where this therefore um, makes that big change is for a lot of employers where they were possibly using a part year entitlement, all of a sudden it's a full year entitlement even if they don't work it. The secondary issue then is they could therefore mean that a part year worker could be entitled to more holiday than a part time worker who does work all the year round. So that was the aspect of the case that has sort of driven the further sort of output from base because what Bayes have now um, created the consultation on is saying, well, thank you very much for that. That's a beautiful decision, but it doesn't really help anyone. Um, and it actually isn't truly how we believe to be correct. And there is this difference. So what they have now created the consultation on is uh, it on a high level um, is creating a holiday entitlement period or a um, reference period of 52 weeks. And unlike the pay where you find 52 weeks out of 104, you just go back 52, take the weeks that they actually worked and multiply it by, guess what? 12.07% to get the actual entitlement rather than the pay. So actually saying they're not gonna be entitled to 5.6 weeks if they don't work the full year, they'll be entitled to the percentage of the entitlement depending on the number of weeks they actually work in the year. I think that's about it, hopefully. Okay, fabulous. Anything you would add to that, Simon? What I'm gonna do, I've just pulled together a holiday pay consultation yes. um, piece, which I'll drop into the chat. If you saw me clicking away, that's what I'm doing. I'm just gonna quickly bung that into the chat, but if there's anything you would add to that? Yeah, sure. So there are so there are a couple of uh, problems that uh, appear with the and it is a consultation. So what they're asking for is opinion and response. And there are a couple of problems with it uh, that are just to think of. So one is the intention of actually moving to, as uh, Richard said, a 52 week average, 
but that would include all weeks, whether you were paid, worked or not, to find the earnings, and then you've got this entitlement. The challenge with the 1207% method is that its proposal is on elements of hours. So there is an element of what do you do with pay and the averaging there, which is predominantly one of the challenges. So if that's a 52-week average, maybe that's good. But there is an element of it's looking at hours and not pay, because many people have actually been doing a 1207 of pay, not time. Equally, what time does come? So it's worth looking at and giving opinion. And especially um, uh, the other angle is, of course, the people that devise this sort of legislation are monthly salaried people who don't get extra hours and don't work zero hours contracts. And so they don't really know a lot about uh, what happens in the real world. Am I allowed to say that sort of thing? But sometimes <laughs> there's an element of uh, design at civil service level fit civil service pay. Does it fit UK PLC is just a little bit of consideration. So it's worth actually looking at the consultation and examples. I don't think it's necessary giving us the answer. I think it's giving us an answer to respond to, and then they'll consider the responses and see where it goes. But the other angle is uh, just a reminder, that the current law is the current law. So nothing has changed yet. Everyone's entitled to 5.6 weeks at the 52 week average, excluding zero weeks. Super. Well, let's leave in some of these questions then. Uh, Emma says, I think the main issue with holiday pay is interpretation. If we knew exactly what the legislation wanted us to do, we would all be a lot happier. Um, Evelyn says, if someone's SSP has finished, but the employee is still off, do they still accrue holiday pay? Yes. Yeah. The answer, they do, because they're still employed. Yeah. Would they, under this proposed method, potentially no? But under the current law, they do. Don't go there, Simon. <laughs> I've got yeah, that. So, as, as Simon said, you get you are accruing a minimum of 20 days a year. The only caveat with the sickness is it's got to be used within the next 18 months from the end of the holiday year, basically. Yeah, yeah there's a time limit on it. So someone says... It is the use it or lose it time limit. It's a statutory time limit. We're going to take it back to that 12.07% that we know and love so well. If you use 12.07% of hours worked for entitlement, not pay, would this give the wrong figure overall? So, as an example, if someone is hourly paid and you calculate the number of hours of entitlement, then when a claim is made, you do the correct average pay calc for the hours claimed. Yeah, well, they're totally different things. Possibly. And this is this is where the confusion is going to happen. You're going to be using one thing to work out the entitlement, and you're going to be using a totally different thing to work out the pay. And that's exactly. Right. And the joy is, if you read the consultation at the start, it talks about making it simpler, which is my favourite line of all time. So uh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, except when you, uh, yes, get into the consultation, and then it's wanting you to look at the average for the prior year. So it's, and then it's kind of, ooh, yeah, the consultation proposal, some of them actually might be more complex than maybe it sounds. But I th that's why I think it's worth reading. But, it's, but in answer to that question, Nick, no, it doesn't achieve the current law. But if the law is changed, it might achieve the new law. Okay. Uh, 
often we get uh, questions about holiday pay and national minimum wage. We also talk about the, the, the real living wage. So I've got a question here that says, whilst we pay the real living wage from April 2023, we will need to remove some employees from the pension salary sacrifice as they will fall below the living wage. This will be in writing and a change of their contract. So we need to, uh, we need to, sorry, this probably asks, it's just one thing. Uh, this will be in writing and a change of their contract. So we need, do we, so do we need to provide a minimum of 30 days notice? Apologies for that. Oh, that might be a good one for you, Andy, isn't it? Yeah, <clears throat> I think um, the salary sacrifice and whether you can take salary sacrifice or you have to go to normal pension contributions, that's linked to national minimum wage. The real living wage, I thought, was much higher than the national minimum wage. So in theory, you can still do salary sacrifice from the from the from a legislative national minimum wage perspective. So that's a thought you need to consider. Um, in terms of um, the actual agreement you've got with your employees for a salary sacrifice to be taken, then that's, yeah, what have you written in there? You need to get employment law advice on that because it's not um, it's not a pension thing. It's actual contract law between you and the individual as to what you've agreed. So when you can go in and out of normal contributions or salary sacrifice, you could be, you know, because you could end up going back and forth every every month, you know, if, if you're not careful in what in terms of what you're paying and what you're not paying. Um, so my first thought is real living wage above national minimum wage, you don't need to worry about salary sacrifice until you consider you might be breaching national minimum wage. Um, I don't know what else, any other thoughts anyone else has got? Well, some, sometimes, as, as and is implying, the, the general implication, of course, is that living wage is above the national set rates. However, uh, as, as Andy is also saying, you can sacrifice living wage. You wouldn't bre breach the living wage foundation by doing sacrifice or even mm. deductions for the benefit of the employer because it doesn't follow national minimum wage law. So you can actually be a living wage employer have an audit and find you've breached national minimum wage because you've forgotten to take account of all these other things, such as salary sacrifice for the electric vehicle and uh, childcare and your pensions. And also, by the way, they've taken a £50 subscription for the staff canteen. There's all those sorts of things that might be going on, which wouldn't breach living wage but they would breach national living wage and national minimum wage. So it's uh, it's a complex area. Uh, if there's an element of, uh, I don't know if that related to holiday particularly. but No, I don't think it did. No, I don't think it did. I've yes. got one here that, that, that does. Uh, I'll come to you, um, Lou, uh, just to, to, to pull you into to this, uh, but always pass it on if I've gone to the wrong individual. But it says, our zero hours staff don't take any actual holiday, as some of them may not have worked for months. How do we deal with this? Do we just pay out at the end of the holiday year? I think may well Simon laugh. Does it I feel that it depends on the contract and how the contract is written on how it's dealt with because people who work are still entitled to holidays. Um, I think Simon, do you agree that it would be a contractual agreement between the employer and the employee at what point that would be paid out? Now when I worked in local government, how they dealt with that was that they looked at it and they reviewed what should have been paid or what was due, and it would, might have been paid um, every quarter. But there are some employers I know as a bureau 
that if a payment's made and it's in part of the company policy that's been signed up and agreed, it can be paid on a monthly basis. Yeah. So I think Lou's correct to an extent of the contract is key, but also is key is having leave. So that elements of uh, you could have someone that works every day of the year and crews up all this holiday. Can you pay them cash? And I think the answer within the law would be no. But if you've got periods where they haven't worked, there's no reason why you can't say that's when you're on holiday. So does that kind of balance come into play? So you don't have to be assigned to do work to take holiday. You just have to not work is the general principle. So if you're on a zero hours contract and you're not paid for three weeks because you didn't do any work, the employer could say, here's your holiday. But your leave is in those three weeks you didn't work, you know, whether that's half an hour, an hour or whatever. But if they work throughout, where's the leave taken? See where I'm coming from. So it's an element of being very careful. Which might be a process. A different individual's followed up. They've obviously got more zero-hour employees, so they've been pulled into the conversation here. It says if zero-hour employees don't ask for holiday, reallocate holidays to them using the double notice rule. Yeah, exactly. And the double notice rule that's being talked about there is an employer can require people to take holiday. Yes, um, they can say you're going to be on holiday on this date and uh, the requirement is to give twice the notice of the length of the leave. So that's, I think, what they mean by the double notice. So, yes, so if they weren't assigned to work next week uh, and they've got a day's holiday, you could say today or, by the way, next Wednesday you're on holiday and we'll pay you for the day because you've given more than two days notice. Just to add, though, um, just with zero hours workers, I think often, you know, it's a good one to capitalise on why the contract is used, because often it's used for peaks and troughs. So if in your business, you know when it's quiet and you're not going to be using those workers in, you know, in previous roles, we've just we've paid holiday on a regular basis. But it's always where we know those workers won't be in. So effectively, they're taking the leave. But it works in terms of the, in line with um, the business requirements, essentially. So it's it's designing the contract in that way as well as is, is helpful. It gives payroll certainty. And there's a, there's a little concession in relation to zero hours contracts as well. And that's if you haven't paid them for four weeks, the law permits you to pay them as if they've left. Doesn't mean they have left. It just means you can do them as a termination holiday payment. You can retain them, but that stops all your accrual basis, etc., from occurring. They can still be on your books, but in effect, you've paid all the holiday up to date. Nice, nice. Now we're getting a few salary sacrifice questions. For those that put the salary sacrifice questions into the box, thank you. I'm going to ask those when we open the salary sacrifice slide. So bear with us when we open that section. I will come to those questions. A couple more on holiday pay, though. And I'll stay with you, Samantha, if I can for a moment. Um, if we want to operate a holiday purchase scheme. Should the deductions only be uh, from the gross side or can we operate a net deduction if we have employees who will breach national minimum wage? Um, uh, well, for, for national minimum wage, you absolutely shouldn't be uh, implementing any salary sacrifice scheme where it would take them below that level. Um, as an option for a net deduction, 
I I wouldn't think that that would be effective either. But I, it's my instinct. I'm I'm sure somebody else would be able to put more around that. I can see Simon because he's he's shaking his head at the same time. So <laughs> yeah, it, it it yeah, it doesn't feel right. It feels like that would still be classed as for the benefit of the employer because ultimately that's where that pay would fit. Um, yeah, net 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 deduction makes no difference. If you look at the mm-hmm. Iceland case that had mm-hmm. so much gravity a couple of years ago, uh, because the company it was going to was linked to Iceland in the end, so it was an asset that was a net deduction. It makes no difference that it's gross or net. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as a scheme, yeah, a you know, where of... you can. Sorry, Simon. I was just going to say where you, you know where you can implement that salary exchange. I think it's. It's a win-win because it it can be a saving for the employer, and from a benefits perspective, everybody knows what the market's like out there at the moment, and you know it, it is quite simple to operate off on an annual basis, um, and and the systems out there that can support it as well. Crap. Anything you, anyone would like to add to that? Are we good? We covered. Well, the only additional comment that Nick was it's a question of who are you who are they paying if you deduct it who's getting that money and as Sam shown and I think uh, Richard as well it, for a holiday scheme they're paying the employer will payments to the employer reduce pay for national minimum wage purposes so it absolutely make no difference and that applies to others as well so if you've got childcare vouchers who are they paying? The employee is not buying childcare vouchers off the childcare company. The employer is. The payment is to the employer. Yeah, because there is no tax and NI relief for an employee purchase of childcare. So maybe we'll cover some aspects of that with Sarah's sacrifice. But if it was, um, you know, they've got a £10 union fee, you're not paying the employer, you're paying the union. That's okay because it's not for the benefit of the employer. That's for the benefit of the employee. So, um, so there's an element of thinking: who, if we move something from salary sacrifice to a deduction, is that paying? And in the case of a holiday scheme here, it would be paying the employer. So it actually would have no effect, and you'd still be in breach of national minimum wage law. Okay. A couple of comments on there as well. Um, Kerry has said, if you op- if you operate purchase leave, the person is working less hours across the year. Doesn't that mean the hourly rate for the work time still sits above national minimum wage? Possibly, yeah. Yeah, when the holiday's taken, but not necessarily when the deduction yeah. is made. Because remember, right. you calculate national minimum wage against pay reference periods, not the year. So, good try. No. <laughs> Next. Sure. Um, I've got here net for purchasing isn't an option we have just launched the scheme it's still opening you up not to be in compliance national wages more of an observation thank you um brought annual and sold annual leave is offered in our business that we have set up as part of the employees gross and taxable pay thank you for that Brenda Uh, so there is a question here that comes in actually we've seen there's two or three questions that run along a similar theme so I'll probably try and if I can come up with a way of answering this in asking this in one way that kind of makes sense where do you find the guidance for how to calculate a variable hours for agency worker holiday entitlement? Not pay, very clear on this, but the entitlement. And the government calculator purely just says 5.6 weeks. No actual guidance is provided in terms of what it means in reality or how to calculate as you go along. 
you don't just do holidays at the end of the year. And the reason I highlight this is a question. I've had another one that came in that said, what about for people who work different weeks every week and are paid different values each time they take leave? I know how to calculate holiday pay, but I do not know how to work out how to do the accrual, given that their entitlement is usually accrued based on time worked. Oh, okay. Well, in accordance with the law, it isn't. And I think that's the critical factor here. So accrual of entitlement is nothing to do with work. It's uh, all to do presently under current law, Regulation 13, 13A, 14, 15, 16, on how long you've been an employee. So you accrue entitlement from the first day of employment. Whether they give you hours or not, your entitlement is accruing. And accrual only actually applies to the first year of employment as well. So it doesn't apply to subsequent years. Your entitlement to subsequent years is 5.6 weeks as a statutory minimum. And the basis in the first year, if you're employed to the end, is one twelfth of 5.6 weeks for every month or part month you're employed. Okay, it comes under, I think, I'm saying this from memory, I think it's regulation 15. And if you leave, it then goes on a basis of 5.6 weeks, divided by, in effect, 365 times the number of days from the first day you're employed to the day your employment terminates. Now, with the starter pay, it's rounded. It's required to be rounded in days. So to uh, half day or full day, then you apply the hours uh, that you would normally get in a day, which could be an average or a fixed basis. With uh, lever, it's rounded to tenths, and you can never round down. We've had a couple of requests to actually chop down to the whole number. You can't. You can chop up. You can't chop down. That's unlawful. Um, you've got to round it up. You can round it up to half day, though. So the basis, whether they work one hours or 100 hours, if they work for one month, it's one twelfth of 5.6 weeks leave. That's the entitlement. Uh, if you employed them on the 31st of the month, uh, say if you employed them on the 30, I don't know, uh, 30th, 1st of, of uh, November, 30th of November, and the holiday year runs from January to February, they have two months. So two twelfths of 5.6 weeks according to Regulation 15. So the Bayes calculator operates in weeks because that's the outcome of pay. Now, you know whether you've paid it because number of weeks times the average will equal the amount of money. Is that what you've paid? Uh, hopefully that helps. It may sound a bit obtuse on some of that process. The problem is quite often we're trying to base it on a basis that the law doesn't cover. That doesn't mean you can do what you like. It means whatever you do, has to equal what the law requires, which is 5.6 weeks. And that's why the base calculator always does it in weeks. Just to clarify here, that the individuals come back and say, what is a week? What if someone just wants to take three hours off? There needs to be some method of division. Does that make sense? Exactly. So what does that three hours represent in the week they're taking the leave? So some decision needs to be made of what that three hours means now if they only work 10 hours normally and they've got three hours leave so they're only working seven then you could say that's three tenths of a week in which case you'd reduce their entitlement by three tenths of a week and you'd pay them three tenths of the average i guess the complication comes in when it's variable when you do 10 hours one week one hour the next six hours well, the yeah next. it has no it has no okay. implication at all no. nick doesn't count the variable nature is in the average weekly earnings calculation. The leave is what's that week? 
Yeah, there is no Would normal. With that, that's, Richard? That's, the, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. Well, there so is. Only, yeah, yeah. No, in a week, you've got a week. What yeah. would the working week be? What proportion did they take as leave? The history so, doesn't matter. So another question here, and um, I'll come to you for this one, Richard. Am I correct in assuming that the 12.07% method, I love this, uh, is still in use and the 52-week average is still in consultation? No. <laughs> That's what I thought Absolutely you would say. Not. So here's yeah. the score. The 12.07 never truly existed. The trouble with the 12.07% and at the point of the Leslie Brazil case was that, for instance, it was recommended as a tool by ACAS and it was tertiarily included in certain government forms. Um, by rights, it hasn't been 12.07%. It was 12 weeks average. And then obviously from 2017, it became 52 weeks average. So it was a method that was recommended outside of the legislation. The trouble was it should never really have been recommended. Um, and we've seen through the Brazil case where there can be pitfalls to it. So if you can go on government, find me 12.07% in anything other than this new consultation, um, Simon will take you out to dinner. <laughs> I, can I mean, say that, say, yeah. documented in all the ACAS information and all the stuff that we used to work as. I mean, that's I think that was the problem. Yeah. It was other but government magic, bodies started to use it and put it, it in their documentation. When, that's, magically, that's what true. happened with the Brazil case is it vanished as if by 2019. Magic. Yeah, yes. amazing. Yes. So 2019 ACAS dropped it. Sorry, go on, Lou. No, I think so. To go back to the poll and the que and the questions that we asked. This is why we need to have clarification and this is why we need to take part in the consultation. Because as Simon and Richard have both alluded at the very start, whenever you go on to social media groups, in particular Facebook, we have people sharing what they do, but with no facts to back it up. And then other businesses, organisations and teams are picking that up. So the 12.07 hasn't in a hasn't been around for a long time but it's still there because we're going back to the very start of the conversations when all this kicked off six seven eight years ago so this this conversation opens up to see that it's not just one or two people we're talking about possibly hundreds of people hundreds of people using this figure and we we shouldn't be but we should also get online and take the 10 or 15 minutes to do the consultation because for so long we've worked in the dark. I mean, not all of us have minds like Simon and Richard, no offence, who who teach this and who know this. Every day, whenever you're in payroll, you're dealing with employees and other day-to-day -day payroll without having this added complication of holiday pay. I'll get off my soapbox, but I do feel That's strongly. Right, because but, you know, let's be honest, this is only one portion of where employers have issues at the moment. We yeah. could go into the case law so let's say Gary Locke, British Airways, Dudley Metropolitan Council, and I'll carry on and carry on. You know, there's all of that too, where it isn't legislation. And to a degree other than probably Gary Locke, it isn't guidance either. But we have to consider that too. So I think there is so many tangibles, so much legacy, and so many, I guess, particular opinions that you could actually take the whole holiday pay subject 
and say, what we really need is almost like a list. This is genuinely what you've now got to do. This is how you calculate it. This is what you've got to include, and this is what you should now. And that's what we need. And I'm going to be prime minister one day, and I'll make sure it happens. <laughs> yeah. Just to make it easier, if people did want to, just by following on from Lou's comment, really, if people do want to get involved in this, I've just put a link into the chat box. So any affected party can take part in the consultation. Uh, including but not limited to employees, employers and unions, as well as legal representatives to respond to the consultation. I've put the link in the chat box. If you do, if you are passionate as which it is about this, then you can yeah. click through that link and, and make your, your own voices heard. And it sounds from what Lou said that it's, it's worthwhile doing. Um, so we can try and get some. I mean, they devolved the, uh, the the office for tax simplification. Maybe they should bring it back in there. It'd be a little bit easier, but <laughs> I think that went with this well, trust. Office yeah. of holiday simplification. Yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> well, there's two more questions here. We're getting as many questions on salary sacrifice. We are going to need to shift shift the conversation forward. Sure. I'm going to just cover these last two questions, and then we'll open up the slides on um on salary sacrifice for those who've been waiting very patiently with your questions. I will get to those shortly. So the last two here on holiday pay. Um, by the way, if you do have more questions on holiday pay, you can continue to put them in the chat box. I will try and get to them. But I'm going to move to the salary sacrifice question next, and we'll come back to some further questions a little bit later on. So last couple here. Based on this recent consultation, a colleague of mine has heard that contracts ideally should show employee holiday entitlement in weeks, not days. Is this correct? Yes, where time worked is variable, that's the Bayes recommended method is to operate in weeks. Super. Yes. And last but not least, do you know the re the regulation that allows for the payment of holiday as though a as though a lever for those who have not worked for the last four weeks, but not process as a lever? Uh, for the four weeks on a zero hours, no pay. Um, we can look that up and provide that, but uh, but that is a requirement. So you'll find that in the irregular pay guidance issued by Bayes, but I can't remember off the top of my head the specific legislative basis for that. But it is mentioned in the irregular hours and guide and uh, holiday pay guidance issued by Bayes that you can treat someone not paid for four weeks as a lever. Yeah, because the determination is Reg 16, and I can't. Correct. I think it's in there. I know yeah, it's really it's sad. It's probably in the Employment Rights Act. Yeah. Or, or similar. And uh, the, the other aspect, which is still quite common, Nick, and we do still see a lot, is rolled up holiday. And that's where we've got to be careful. But rolled up holiday was outlawed in 2009. So um, if I've got that right from memory. Uh, Robinson so the Yes, uh, the 52% the averaging uh, applies for Great Britain. So the 52 over 104 weeks, excluding zero weeks, applies to Great Britain. So that's England, Wales and Scotland only. It came in April 2020. Uh, Lou is kind of our Northern Ireland representative. If you're employed under a Northern Ireland contract, Northern Ireland is devolved law, uh, still retains the 12 week yeah. excluding zero pay weeks averaging method requirement. Yeah. Right. Well, let's um, let's move. Uh, I say keep quitting the holiday questions in the in the chat box. But let's move the slide on. We've got lots of questions about other areas uh, of, of the of the conversation brings you today, particularly around salary sacrifice. And <coughs> um, so the new slide here is we're going to talk about how these schemes work, the wellness balance, EV cars, lots of questions on social media, in particular about EV cars and insurance implications in particular, and of course, national living wage. Uh, so that, what I mentioned here as well, there is a, a link you'll see at the bottom that there is a premium webinar. This is a paid for webinar. 
And for those that have questions we don't cover today that really want to get into the detail on this, Simon is hosting um, a premium webinar uh, on salary sacrifice on February 27th. So you can sign up for that. It's a paid for webinar. You're going to get really into the detail here for the whole session rather than part of it as we are doing today. So um, if we don't get to all your questions, uh, you're still none the wiser. That's the one to sign up for. And you'll have Simon all to yourself to talk about salary sacrifice. But uh, aside from that, the link is there so you click through and I'll try and put it in the chat as well. Um, let's talk about how these schemes work. Who would like to kick off the conversation? I think from a bureau perspective, just to go back to the very basics before we go into the okay. detail, it's important to remember that a salary sacrifice arrangement is an agreement to reduce an employee's entitlement to cash pay usually in return for a non-cash benefit. And as an employer, you can get set up a salary sacrifice arrangement by changing the terms and conditions of an employee's employment contract. And I think that's really important to remember because so many times I've had employers and businesses come and they haven't actually given that information to the employer, the employee, they don't understand it. And they try to set up a payroll within a bureau that doesn't take into consideration the reduced salary and the impact that it will have. Yeah, I, little I, I agree with you. Just to say, if anyone knows this, and this isn't the detail, but I, I've never understood it. Maybe it's because I'm outside looking in. Why is it called salary sacrifice and not salary exchange? Sal sacrifice, I think, just gives all the wrong idea of what it's all about. When for me, as I understand it, it should be called the salary exchange. Or am I just missing something here? So I well, think a lot of confusion comes around the, about the original, what it's called. The original, yeah, the original conversation was that you are sacrificing an element of your cash in return for a benefit. That was the original statement that was made way back when this all started, hence the name pretty much stuck. But yes, you are exchanging cash for benefit. So it means the same yeah. thing. It's just, I think it's just the formality of what it was originally called way back in 1734. If I become Prime Minister, that's one of my changes I'll be making. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Samantha, I cut you off. You're going to bring, a, bring some more... Um, it was just really to add to what Lou was saying. I think what, what tends to happen with salary sacrifice is someone will go in and they'll go, right, we're going to set up a salary sacrifice scheme and, and we're going to change the contracts or amend the contracts and do all of this. And then exactly like Lou says, then everything then gets forgotten. It's almost like a project that was a point in time and going forward, nobody quite remembers that it needs to continue and it's got to be taken into consideration from every pay period going forward. And, and that's the big challenge. So how do the scheme work? There are, there are variation to your, to your contracts, as we've already said. But the schemes, to, in order to remain effective and stay effective, it's about keeping those principles alive. And that is that is so, so important with salary sacrifice. And it, I think it's a big risk area out there for, for businesses where, where those principles become lost, whether it be because of attrition or lack of knowledge. Um, but it's so essential that they don't. Have you ever asked yourself... How can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. 
JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Simon, I wonder if you can just uh, bring up, if you can just run us through these bullet points. We've already had one, seven questions come in on this, so that's going to keep us busy again. So I wonder if we can just uh, work through these points in turn, and then we'll uh, we'll jump into those questions. Yeah, and, uh, sure. So how do these schemes running. work? Uh, Lou's been very good. I think she's exactly right. And it's a principle that quite often we get lost in as professionals even, because it is a strange concept. So um, I guess if you ask the common man, can I buy a childcare voucher and get tax relief? They might think they can, but you can't. They might think if you're part of a cycle scheme, you can buy a bike and get it tax and NI free. You can't, it's impossible. They might think you can get electric vehicle and get it tax and NI free. You can't. So we play a little bit of trickery seats here. So how do these schemes work? And there's an element of, well, I'll tell you what, this is between employee and employer. I'll pat your back if you pat my back. So you actually agree to take a pay cut so you never earn the money. All right. And in return, you're receiving a free benefit in kind. Now, the perception is, I've paid for it as an individual. You've absolutely paid nothing. You've taken a pay cut and you're receiving a free benefit. So then the tax position moves to the benefit. And if an employer gives me free a childcare voucher, do I have a tax and an eye liability on that free benefit? And the answer is up to £55 a week. No, it's tax and NI free. But if I buy £55, I have to pay it after I've paid my tax and NI. So we can see the difference. So the one is taking a pay cut up front, and they're not retrospective. You can't really make a retrospective agreement. And I think, as Richard said, the earlier salary sacrifice arrangements were generally related to bonuses. So what people would say is instead of giving me my, I don't know, £10,000 bonus this year, can you pay it into my pension scheme? Because I'm going to retire in a few years' time. That way, there was no tax, no national insurance taken off the bonus because you never had a bonus. All you had was a £10,000 or maybe even a £10,138 amount because the employer saved on national insurance paid into your pension scheme as an employer pension contribution. And that's where they really originate from is on pensions bonus sacrifice. Then we have a principle that applies. So just think about it. I'm going to give next week's presentation too early. I've got to be careful, haven't I? Sign up for it. People won't sign up. Princi- so I've just yeah, put the link in the a- chat for everybody so they can sign up. Sure. Yeah, so there is a principle called Heaton v. Bell, and I'm not mm-hmm. going to go into the principle here, but sometimes you'll talk about lifetime events or lifetime change, because if you can just change the contract every other week, it doesn't work. Could that apply to living wage switch off? Could actually changing someone from a service sacrifice to an employee purchase 
uh, actually help reduce. The, ch the challenge with the national living wage is it's going up nine odd percent or whatever it is in April. So millions more people will be close to the national living wage. And if they're part of these flexible benefits, salary sacrifice arrangements, you may actually find they breach national minimum wage law. All right. But uh, I think the wellness balance is a comment of, and I'm going all over the place here, Nick, but the wellness balance is a comment of actually they're a great vehicle for those that uh, have earnings sufficient to actually bring benefits into our working life, our family, etc. whether that's medical insurance or dental cover, if you can find a dentist, so you might need the dental cover um, to get ourselves fit by riding bicycles, getting a new telly, uh, all these sorts of things. Uh, electric vehicle, because buying a Tesla without it, you've got to do it after you've paid your tax in NI. So they're really expensive. If you do it through an EV scheme, you, you could probably get, I don't know if you're a high earner, uh, 42 or uh, percent off because you don't pay tax and national insurance on that. These are all elements for why they've become popular over the years. But we also have something called OPRA. So that's optional remuneration law, which actually stops it for a lot of things. So I think it's important to understand what these salary sacrifice arrangements are, what they really are. The employee is absolutely buying nothing. Unfortunately, as part of the salary sacrifice, uh, sorry, um, flexible benefit schemes, they often talk about benefit purchase, but you're not actually buying benefits at all. You're allocating this pocket of employer benefit to various different things. Does that I think help? That's quite confused? Key. Yeah, because I think this is the key because there is this overlying function that if you are sacrificing, you're sacrificing your money towards an employer cost, not an employee cost. All salary sacrifices are paid for by the employer. So whether it's a car, whether it's a private health care, whether it's a pension, you're sacrificing the employer contribution. Hence, as Simon quite rightly said, at no point are you buying anything or paying for anything. And that's quite key. Great. Good clarification. Well, listen, we know this is an audience show and we've got a lot of questions here. I'm going to try and run through them and they're going to bring you into the conversation, um, which you'll be pleased to hear. Here we go. Our workplace pension scheme operates via salary sacrifice. When we auto enroll new joiners, we are potentially doing so without getting their prior agreement to sacrifice their salary. Do the auto enrollment requirements supersede this or should we actually be running a non-salary sacrifice option? To, to put someone into an automatic enrollment scheme, you cannot have any barriers. So you cannot get the individual to sign up to salary sacrifice in advance. It should all be built into the employment contract, etc., so that when you come to enroll someone, they're going to go into the pension scheme and they're going to be um, having a salary sacrifice agreement already set up ready for them so that they are giving up part of their salary in exchange for an additional employer contribution. So you can have salary sacrifice agreements, you just got to get that all that in place before they join the scheme. So you do need to, it, it, it's, it's very common. So there's stuff out there um, and legal people can advise on how to build it all into your contract of employment, you know, and it can be, 
it is you know you are just saying i'm going you know my pay will be reduced by the employee amount so the five percent for instance you just got to get it worded properly and it then becomes an employer contribution but it's you need to just go and get your legal advice to get all your contracts nicely in place so it's all done neat and tidy well that dovetails very nicely into another question we've had from a different uh, audience participator here which says do we need to issue a new contract every time someone enters or changes their salary sacrifice if not then what paperwork do we need to issue well if, if it was me I'd, I'd have my salary sacrifice agreement in such a way that any changes were all built in but so it's flexible benefit schemes for instance if you've got one of those then you're going to have all those agreements in place as part of flex spend sign up that you are doing um obviously uh, just one additional point on the pensions front don't forget you need to make sure the pension provider is happy for salary sacrifice to be the route for that because they might have built into the scheme rules it's an employee contribution and an employer contribution not employer only which is what a salary sacrifice scheme would be um so make sure that your pension people are aware of what's going on in advance of you putting a salary sacrifice agreement in place um, but in terms of the other side of things i'll leave it with my my fellow panelists to comment yeah principally you would have a contract which incorporates change so the usual favorite being life change um, and obviously we saw a huge amount of that during covid uh, because that was considered a life change you may have ladies for instance who go on maternity um, or men who go on to parental pay um, all of these things are considered life change and therefore would affect or could affect on the employee's choice the status of the um, sacrifice so rather than having to recontract every time somebody changes something it makes far more sense you would say to have all of that caveat um, and all of that variation built into the original agreement super and uh, while so i've got so you often, uh, Andy, so often listen. sorry so go on, I'm just thinking often often nick it would be part of the application of the benefit of the scheme so the variation is not usually issue a new contract it's just an addendum isn't it so you've got the contract change within the application so i imagine uh, as andy's implying on the pensions there the uh, pension salary sacrifice would be part of the original auto enrollment information shared with the employee uh, another question here. I think what we see more and more often is that employers apply a salary sacrifice deduction, but payroll software doesn't seem to calculate overtime, unpaid leave, etc., based on salary minus salary sacrifice. Well, the system is that you're on the Irene committee, Simon. You might be a, a good person to uh, to comment on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Well, lots of employers actually place a protection in because um, you're right, strictly speaking, the earnings is reduced. So quite often, an employer will operate what they call a notional earnings amount, which would be the part, what it would have been if the sacrifice wasn't in place. That way, employees aren't disadvantaged on their overtime rates or other benefit calculation values, such as an employer pension contribution, for example, because in theory, qualifying earnings is dropped. But there may be an element of, well, that's advantage just the employer. So often, um, other associated items are based on a notional uh, value, which is the original pre-sacrifice amount. 
that doesn't make it the amount they're actually being paid. They're actually paid after the sacrifice, but it is used as a basis to keep things equitable on linked items. So it's quite common, actually, for uh, notional uh, values to be applied. But it must uh, also be remembered that, I was going to say, Nick, but just really on the back of that, which is really, really important, um, that can only be on certain areas and items. When we look at things like maternity, for instance, it's nickable pay. And because you sacrifice, yes, one. reduce your nickable pay, and therefore when you're calculating the average earnings, you're calculating sub or after, after sacrifice. So even with the notional to support and, I guess, maintain areas like overtime, there are always areas that aren't, um, because always the winner is student loans. Um, if you can sacrifice half your pay, your student loan is only calculated to the threshold of your nickable pay. And therefore, by having lots of um, salary sacrifice, it could actually reduce the effect of your student loan. So there's winners and losers, absolutely, when it comes to the more just, just Just to follow on as well, the same individual that posted the original comment just says, does that need to be explicit? Question mark. I think it was referring to your initial answer, Simon. Well, well, no, because that becomes an employer not explicit to the salary sacrifice arrangement or satisfying HMRC. That's more a contractual matter. So, um, it, so it's variable depending on the employer's use, really. So, uh, hopefully that helps. I think it's good to make it explicit, but there isn't a set rule that is applied for everyone. You choose as an employer what you want to do. Well, we knew there'd probably be a question around cars. We've got one that's come in here. Um, it says we have recently set up a salary, uh, a sacrifice scheme for cars. The way it is set up is that the employee is exchanging a portion of salary for the car. The issue I have is trying to establish whether it is a company car or not. On the other hand, the employee is still receiving a car allowance. Between HR and our finance team, there seems to be lots of discussion, but no real clear guidance. I've been advised that it is a P11D item. Can you give some guidance on this, please? Oh, well, I forgot to mention at the end of the scheme, the employee owns the car. Mm. Well, so I know Richard's going to... I'll yeah. come to you for this one, actually, Richard, because you commented on this. So what's your, what's your immediate thought, judging on that reaction? Does the employee own the car? So here's the question. Who's paying the lease? Let's just start there, shall we? During the period of lease, it's the employer who is paying the lease on the EV car. And as such, it, yes, it's a salary sacrifice. Um, yes, it's a legacy because it's under 75 grams per kilometre. So all of the NI savings are applicable to the employee and the employer. But during the period of the lease time, it's an employer car. Therefore, it's a company car. So where we see you can actually see even more value in these EV lease schemes is because it's a company lease. It could well and more than likely would include maintenance, uh, car insurance, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on, I'd suggest, and all the other applicables that you would get with a company car. On those grounds, therefore, it's a P11D item because it's a company car. So, yes, you're paying the lease via the salary sacrifice. That isn't considered for the P11D, but the good old retail value of the car the day before it's received is. Um, currently, that sits at 2%, um, and that would be a P46 car item and it will be a P11D car item. Now, I've never been asked the last bit before, which is then the employee owns the car. So I'm guessing that then becomes a transfer of asset. Am I right, yeah. Simon? Yeah. I'd absolutely agree. So then that's a taxable benefit when the asset is transferred. 
Although presumably, I don't know, I mean, it depends on the size of the company, the, the company will write off the uh, proportion of their assets over the course of time, right? So if they oh, were writing off a value by yeah. 25% a year over four transfer. years, the employee yeah. could transfer yeah. a pound or something like that. It could, but it doesn't kind of work that way. And, and well, you, you'll know you're kind of run a business, Nick. So um, for, for, our co- for a company's house, I can have a 25% asset drawdown for HMRC, uh, so a quarter, every, and it's written off in four years. For HMRC uh, corporation tax, it's reduces by 18% infinitum until yeah. it gets to a point where it's so small. So although I may have written it out from my corporation, uh, from my company's house uh, profit level over four years for a corporation tax, it could take 30 years. But uh, in relation to this, you could say on my company asset, this actually has no value, but it still has a taxable value. So that will go on market, uh, not company's value. So you then, well, and which might be problematical. So if some of you have changed your car more recently. You may have found, for example, I often buy near new cars. Yeah, they've um, gone up. I actually... My, yes, my exchange for a new near new car, I've had more money for the last near new car I bought three years ago. So I've actually gained. So the asset's gone up in price, which yeah. seems particularly true for EV odd. cars where the waiting list can be significant. Absolutely. You know, actually, you can it's find it's cheaper to buy new. The only positive is, in a lot of cases, it's not the retail, but it's the value or it's the retail okay. value at point of transfer. Uh, and it's the same Correct. with everything. There was the whole thing with the office furniture. Um, when yes. people are being allowed to keep it, when they go back to the office, it's not the retail value of the computer. It's the point of transfer. But as Simon said, yeah. the point of transfer figure is going up. And on certain things, it's now higher than what it possibly was when they got it. <laughs> so it. it's, uh, yes. yeah. yeah, it's not quite like a bike where you think after four years, it's worth 20 quid. Just pay the 20 quid for an EV car. It, you may find it's a lot more. And then you'd owe 20% of that asset in tax. Yeah, it will be taxable uh, and subject to class 1A. Conscious of time, I'm going to come to Andy for one final question here on salary sacrifice for the moment. There's a couple of other questions as well, which I'll run through um, in a moment we go through polls too. Uh, So back to you, Andy. How do um, you do the salary sacrifice calculation when the employee wants to have their NI savings added back to their pension and not added to their net pay? The individual's um, NI saving then really that's that's the joys of speaking to your employer your payroll department and seeing and speaking to your software provider and see if there's a way of doing that those calculations in the payroll system and if that can't be done then the individual could just say to payroll i uh, um i'd like to uh, not just have five percent salary sacrifice i'd like to have five percent plus twelve percent of five percent <laughs> So 5.6% or whatever, um, as my salary sacrifice deduction and in exchanging that for an, um, the employer contribution. So, yes, that's, I mean, sometimes the employer also um, forgoes the whole or part of their employer NI saving as well. And, and some payroll systems do have that built in as as tick box type. Do you want to do this or not um, set up? So, yeah, have a chat with payroll. Um, and payroll, no doubt, have a chat with a software provider. 
Sure, um, but Nick or Andy will know that um, I wrote an article probably back in the early days of COVID because furlough and salary sacrifice was kind of one of the challenges there um, uh, that actually kind of gives the formula but uh, that you can operate. Of course, for those that are interested in finding out more, there is obviously that um, webinar that uh, Simon's running. It's a premium webinar, so it's a paid-for webinar. Um, but have a look at that link if you want to find out more. I'm going to move the conversation on. Can, can uh, I just, just say one thing, Nick? Just on, S on SMP and salary sacrifice, yeah. we we do need to talk about that in case people are not aware. Um, if you're doing salary sacrifice and the person's only on SMP, that's all they're getting paid, then you cannot recover salary sacrifice from SMP. Remember, they've exchanged their salary for an employer contribution. Employer contributions are payable by the employer during the maternity pay period while they're getting SMP based on the pay the individual would have had had they not been on maternity leave. So the individual will pay based on what they are receiving in terms of pensionable pay. But if, they've, if they're doing salary sacrifice, then the individual is not paying anything. The employer is paying the whole lot based on the pay they would have had had they not been on maternity leave. So, and you cannot recover that salary sacrifice amount from SMP. If there's other occupational maternity pay or maybe some other payments going through and the salary sacrifice agreement between the employee and employer allows it, then that salary sacrifice amount could be recovered from those additional payments, but it cannot be covered from SMP. Um, and, so and bear that, that in mind. Sure, and that extends, Nick, to these other items. So if they get £55 worth of childcare, they're entitled to £55 pounds mm. worth of childcare through their maternity leave. They're entitled to the continued use of the EV car through the maternity leave, 52 weeks. And uh, potentially, if you only pay them SMP, they don't have to pay a penny. Well, Same it, with the bike. Yeah. It's very good to have very good, good rules in your sacrifice scheme. It's I'm going to move that. the conversation on, Image, just so we get through the other subjects, because I know we could be here for a while. There's still questions coming in. I'm going to open the next poll just to just to close down the salary sacrifice section for now. Uh, poll is to get you all involved. 145 of you here. How will national minimum wage affect your salary sacrifice scheme? Uh, option one, we don't offer it. Option two, it will be expanded. Option three, we are looking at EV cars. Now, interestingly on that, I did get an update as well on the car question. You'll be uh, interested to hear here, Simon uh, and Richard. It says the... Um, in, let's have a look here. So the employee actually did end up with a Tesla. So uh, yeah. we, uh, know how that worked out. Um, yeah. So that'd be quite interesting. <laughs> anyway, and I thought you'd laugh. While we're there, a couple of questions have come in that don't necessarily um, sit in the salary sacrifice section. So I thought we could ask those while we're waiting for the poll results to come in. One of those comes in from Tamar. Uh, Hi, is union subscription deducted from gross before tax? No. 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 Great, that's fine. Uh, so you take it after tax and after national insurance union subscription. Sure. Uh, for okay, we have been paying someone company sick pay, then PHI, but PHI has now expired as the employee has reached state retirement age. Can we start paying her SSP now, as we have never paid SSP? She's been off since October 2020. Hmm. I don't think that's true, Nick. I think if they've always been paying SSP, if not, they've been breaking the law. The reason being is sometimes we think when someone goes on sick, we're paying them 100% uh, occupational payment or whatever other payment. Therefore, we're not paid SSP. 
no, the payment is inclusive of SSP. It's not instead of. Um, if they're entitled to SSP, they're entitled to SSP during those periods where you've paid them full pay and they've received it. So the 28-week rule will apply from the start of the commencement of sickness. So it isn't, oh, we'll pay occupational and then at the end of that, we'll move it to SSP. They're already on SSP. It's and just is, it's is, inclusive of the other payments. Is reaching state retirement age impactful at all? Uh, potentially so. Um, I'll give Richard an opportunity to talk on that oh, sort of thing. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it's all on the, I guess it's all on the NI status, isn't it, of the individual? It is, yeah. It's the only thing I can like think average of. Earnings. Yeah, because there's been no applicable earnings, and if they've retired per se, then there's still no applicable earnings. Yeah. That's a good question, and I'm guessing rather than telling. Yeah, so it may be one for a look at. Yeah, it's a look up that one. Perhaps okay. Simon can talk about it in his salary sacrifice webinar. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'll do well, one on SSP. Let's have a look at those poll results then. Uh, see if they come in. Yeah. For those listening on audio, we've got 22% have said we don't offer it. So that's how will national minimum wage affect your salary sacrifice scheme. Uh, 50% say we'll be expanded and 28% say we are looking at EV cars. What are your thoughts on those results, Lou? I think, I mean, the fact that 50% say it will be expanded is good because with the changes coming in as a payroll professional or if you work at part of the HR or finance team, you have to know how your workforce will be impacted and what, if any, changes that you do have to make. So it would be good governance to do that. Um, it's always good, sorry if I'm being cynical, that people don't offer it because salary sacrifice fills you. Well, maybe it's just me. fills you with so much dread because you need to make sure um, that, of what the policy is and what an employee's contract is. And remember, I don't actually work in a business. So I'm working in a bureau environment with 450 plus clients. So it's about understanding what their contracts are and what the employee has signed up for. And again, um, being as part of Evelyn Partners, I'm also um, very lucky that I have tax teams and benefit teams who are able to help me look at the likes of the cars and the impact that will have on employers and employees. So if we can go um, and move forward to enterprise zone relief, that'd be fantastic. We've got three things we're going to talk about here, which is premises and freeport, growth zones and green freeports in Scotland and Wales. And I'm going to start with the question this time, just because, as I said, this question has come in in advance. So the question is this. Uh, an employer can claim NI relief if they have a business premises in a freeport tax site. To claim relief, an employee must spend 60 percent of their working time in the freeport tax site. The Government UK site provides maps of Freeport site areas, but they're really hard to read. Is there anywhere which gives site postcodes? We have two sites which might qualify in Teesside and the Solent, but have not committed as we're actually not sure. Mm -hmm. We'd like to tackle that. I'm not aware of anything other than the maps. The, the, I give a couple of opinions, Nick. I think sure. an employer would know uh, if their premise was in a Freeport area. I'm not aware of a postcode type aspect, but the Freeport area is a kind of defined area, so you'd know uh, potentially through that that you're there or not. Um, I think it's going to be much clearer, and I don't think you could say it's just, a, oh, well, I just happen to be... Um, you know, uh, a quarter of a mile of this sort of map area, 
and I've got totally unrelated business in relation to the Freeport. Therefore, I'm captured by Freeport. I think it's much more you are operating in the Freeport. That's just sort of opinion, but you're quite right. You have to spend 60% of their time working in the Freeport tax site. And um, uh, the only adjustments to that are relating to um, whether they've got disability, pregnancy or maternity. So there, you don't have to be working to get the NIC reliefs uh, on that basis because you've got a reason not to be there. But otherwise, you have to be. And I think the government give examples of those who may be home workers. So if they're a home worker for, I don't know, 59% uh, of the time and they're home 41% of the time, uh, you don't qualify for the Freeport NIC reliefs. So there may be a lot of toing and froing as this comes in. I'm not actually aware of any of our clients operating Freeport yet. We built in the capability. It's there. It's been the same with veterans. I'm sure we've got we've got a number that use veterans, but uh, the Freeport, I'm not sure we have any that I'm aware of, although the capability is <coughs> there. I think there'll be adjustments. People would be having to adjust at the end of year, operate nor ordinary. Plus, it's limited to £25,000 per year, isn't it? First £25,000 worth of earnings. Is the it, enterprise is this, zones is slightly different, I think, isn't it? Is this something then that they can ask the HMRC? Would they have a response if the employer is not aware? If the employee doesn't know if they're only, you say they should know, but if they don't? No. Well, I think they, yeah, my instinct is they should know because the Freeport is established and they're part of it. So it, 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 it so my gut is if you don't know you're part of a Freeport and you're having to look at a map, you're probably not. Is that a f fair assumption yeah. to some of the others think? But I think if you're operating in a Freeport, you know you're operating in a Freeport. Yeah, I've, I've certainly not seen any other form of support other than the maps. Um, personally, I don't think the maps are that bad. I think it's just relating where you are within the cached zone is the complexity. Um, Samantha? I'm not sure if it was mentioned in the question, but just to sort of flag that it is only for new starters as well. So it's not to say that all that all the, their employees then get to have X amount of National insurance relief, it would only apply to new starters from beginning. Yeah. We're getting some questions on pensions. We've got eight or so minutes left. Uh, are there any? Um, I know we, we're, we're rushing through here and quite deliberately so. I want to make sure people do get their, their pensions questions um, answered. And there's a couple that have come in. Um, anything you want to add on green free ports in Scotland, Wales, or growth zones for the moment? Or uh, was that question help just uh, well, explain where we are? Yeah, only that new ones have been announced in the past couple of weeks, so they are being revealed all the time. So although we've had um, the NIC reliefs around for a while, we didn't actually know where they operated. Well, now a number of them are re reported, and we've had a couple announced recently in Scotland. Okay, well, let's move over then to you, Andy, on the pension side. Yeah. We've got a question that's come in. Um, straight away here as well for you. Uh, can companies change the way they administer their workplace pension scheme at any time, i.e. making it a tax relief at source? What should the change process consist of? Right. If you're changing, so lots of thoughts there, really. First of all, if you do speak to your pension provider first to make sure that the, the rules of the pension scheme and what you want to do 
as an employer are in sync. So maybe the rules need to change. If you're going to start changing the rules and you've got more than 50 employees, you may need to go down consultations. You may have a period of consultation saying we're now going to change the scheme, and which can be you're changing the scheme completely, going from one pension provider to another. So you look to see if you need consultation to take place. Um, if it's if it's a, a salary sacrifice you're going to want, want to put in, then obviously, as I say, speak to the pension provider, say this is what we're planning to do, is this going to be... Um, acceptable from your perspective then you're going to take your employment law advice you're going to introduce um, a change to the contracts because that's where the salary sacrifice comes in because what you're doing from a pension perspective is you're going to an employer only contribution setup because the employee bit is no longer there because they're giving up part of their pay in exchange for that additional employer contribution. But you will have some people, maybe near national minimum wage, who will then go from salary sacrifice to normal contributions. So you just need to make sure that the scheme is is set up to understand that sometimes you're going to get an employer contribution only, and for some employees you're going to get a normal employee and employer contribution. Um, you know, five percent, three percent, whatever it might be, based on the scheme rules. So, um, I'm thinking. Yes. Yeah, I was sorry. thinking, Andy. Sorry, uh, if I supplement the question a bit. So, I'm I'm thinking to to fulfil auto enrolment requirements, an employer just needs a scheme in place. If they changed it every week to a new supplier, that wouldn't be a breach of the law, would it? Potentially, as long as they've got a qualifying scheme in place. Just that can be used for automatic enrollment. But if you change MPA to RAS, RAS to MPA yeah. and MPA to RAS. But there is a rule that yeah. says if you as an if if the employer makes the scheme they've got at the moment no longer a qualifying scheme, yeah. or which could be because you're closing that scheme and you're opening a new scheme with a new pension provider, there's an immediate re enrollment requirement. So, the, in, which in simple terms is whoever's in the scheme, in the old scheme, now needs to be put into the new scheme um, immediately. And um, and you, you've so really you've just got to think. And but, but most people would do that contractually. So most of the time, an employer would say, would if you were going to change, like from Nest, for instance, to Now Pensions or from Smart to People's Pensions, wherever around it might be, then you would be consulting. If it's more than 50 employees, you'd be saying, this is what the new scheme is, this is what the new rules are, and so on. So it's a big thing. And you should definitely take legal advice before you do all that sort of stuff. Um, and potentially, even if someone said, I don't want to join a new scheme, immediate re-enrollment would make you put them in to that new scheme, and they'd have to opt out under automatic enrollment rules so can you tell us a little bit about the government review that's due to be published in due course and and how employers should should be planning for this uh this andy um we would there's certainly be a lot of information given out beforehand but this is where the automatic enrollment review is coming up um ddp is saying it will be the mid 2020s so 25 26 maybe that sort of tax year whereby the automatic enrollment age will reduce from 22 down to 18 and the lower earnings threshold will be probably abolished so in effect nil so that all contributions will be from pound one up, pound one upwards perhaps still with the upper limit in place um, so whatever april that takes effect from you're going to have a lot of people potentially being enrolled those between 18 and 22 and also you're going to have be paying more as an employer 
and more as an employee if you've got a scheme that has the um, banded earnings set up, you know, so it's qualifying earnings between the lower limit and the upper limit. If your scheme is is just basic pay and from pound run upwards, then it won't have an impact as such. Um, apart from the scheme needs to be qualifying. So you will find that your scheme still needs to be qualifying and how you determine what a qualifying scheme is will be tweaked because of the fact that a lower threshold has gone. So we need to find out. So when all the information comes out and it'll be consulted probably by DWP, um, we'll have an understanding of how you know that your current set one, set two or set three schemes, which hopefully you know what I mean by that. But it's a way of saying that I've got a pension scheme, which is basic pay only from pound run upwards. And I'm paying 4% employer and 5% employee at the moment. I know my scheme is qualifying. But when the lower threshold goes to nil, then it may be that the contribution rates or something else needs to be tweaked. We'll find out what that means. We don't know yet. Fine. So watch uh, this space. We'll, we'll definitely yeah. be bringing it back to P, a future PQT. So last couple of questions here, just to, to um, finish off uh, the show, really, to make sure we've got through everyone. And come to you, Samantha, briefly. Um, is it a requirement to show SSP payments on wage slips if they are paid company sick pay? Um, no, I think probably Simon alluded to this earlier with with the question around the the sick pay expiry. No, it it isn't. I know a lot of people do. It just makes it easier to keep track of. I think that's probably the history behind it. In in all fairness, but no, it it isn't a requirement. Super. And back to you, Andy. When an employee is on mat pay, uh, we use a notional pay item to calculate the pensions. Is this correct? Um, so, in terms of employer contributions. First of uh, all, what does the scheme require? What the scheme rules around maternity leave? So you need to make sure you comply with that. Then you need to make sure you comply with legislation. Legislation says the employer contribution is based on the pay the person would have had had they not been on maternity leave. So that's and that's where you could use a notional. Yes. That's where you could use a notional pay to track the employer contribution. The employee normally just pays on if it, if the so if it's salary sacrifice, it's going to be that notional pay that you can the the E and er, the E being the salary sacrifice amount, um, will be calculated on. If the individual is just paying normal contributions, then they normally pay their contributions based on the pension pay they're actually receiving every pay period. Super, fantastic. Well, listen, I want to take this opportunity to remind everyone the next one is on the 24th of February. So please do sign up early. 160 of you here today, which is fantastic to see. You can email your questions to us in advance or, of course, let us know on the show. I want to take a huge uh, thank you opportunity here to say thanks to Lou Gray, Samantha Johnson, Simon Parsons, Anne Nichols and Richard George uh, for being our expert panel. Fine, just a huge thank you. We look forward to welcoming you all on the 24th of February for the next show. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.